You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now these are the kings of the land, whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all of the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Hashbon and ruled from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the Sea of Chinnereth eastward and in the direction of Beth Jeshemoth to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Zalakah, and all Bashan to the boundary of the Gesherites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of Yahweh, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the land, whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal-Gad in the valley of Lebanon, to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negeb, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the king of Jericho, one, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one, the king of Jerusalem, one, the king of Hebron, one, the king of Jarmuth, one, the king of Lachish, one, the king of Eglon, one, the king of Gezer, one, the king of Debir, one, the king of Geder, one, the king of Horma, one, the king of Arad, one, the king of Libna, one, the king of Adullam, one, the king of Makeda, one, the king of Bethel, one, the king of Tapua, one, the king of Hefer, one, the king of Ethek, one, the king of Lasharon, one, the king of Madon, one, the king of Hazor, one, the king of Shimron, one, the king of Akshaf, one, the king of Ta'anak, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kadesh, one, the king of Jokniam in Carmel, one, the king of Dor in Nephath Dor, one, the king of Goim in Galilee, one, the king of Tirzah, one, in all, 31 kings. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 690 of this podcast. Today is Friday, August 18th, 2023, and that was a reading of Joshua chapter 12 in the Old Testament. We've got kings defeated by Moses. We've got kings defeated by Joshua. We've got kings being defeated left and right. In fact, so many kings that at a certain point, you just stop keeping track of their names, only give the name of where they were king 31 31 kings defeated by Joshua or 
defeated by Israel when Joshua was leading. It's a lot of kings. It's a lot of kings. But you know, it's funny to me in its way that word got around, right? Word got around to these kings and these nations, these cities. They heard well ahead of time about what God had done with bringing Israel out of Egypt in the first place. They heard about that. And as Israel was defeating the first couple of kings when Moses was still leading Israel before he passed away, before he died, word spread. So obviously, these are not isolated cities, isolated nations, isolated kingdoms, but they're petty kingdoms. They're petty kingdoms that cooperate or trade or fight against each other. They jockey for position, but by and large, they have their turf. They have their territories. And then a new challenger has arrived, and it's Israel. But more to the point, it's Israel's God, which is to say these kings, all of them were defeated by God. But then the text says these kings were defeated by Moses first, and then thereafter by Joshua. And that there are battles and a war being attributed to Moses and Joshua is probably on the list. It's an ever-growing list, but it's probably on the list for what makes us uncomfortable with the Old Testament in comparison to how Christianity is preached and practiced in the U.S. in the year 2023. One of the reasons for this is that we tend to associate, we're conditioned to associate strength with oppression and weakness with being oppressed. So when we come to this, we have a predisposition to view Israel as oppressive and the nations being defeated by, the kingdoms being defeated by Israel as oppressed. They're getting picked on. You leave them alone. Who is Israel? Who is Moses? Who is Joshua? That they would make war, aggressive war, and conquer, and kill, and take possession, and then distribute the land. Who do they think they are? And you know what? If not for God, They wouldn't have won. When God didn't fight for them, they didn't win. But if God had not fought for them at all, they would not have won. But then there's more to it behind that, in that if God had not commanded this, it would be entirely fair game to ask, who do they think they are? Where do they get this idea that this is okay? And yet, because God said, do this, we know that it was right to do. That doesn't mean that everybody who makes aggressive war is good and right, but it is to say that the internationalists, the academics, the elites, the titans of industry who round about a century ago, as told by Una Hathaway and Scott Shapiro in The Internationalists, those guys who said aggressive war making is immoral and against international law, They don't have the authority to unilaterally decide that aggressive war making is 
evil or wicked. They don't have the authority. The academics, the teachers and professors and writers, the tastemakers, the authors, musicians, filmmakers, TV programmers, propagandists, they don't have the authority to unilaterally decide it. And it doesn't really matter how many of them try to make this claim. They don't have the authority to say that all aggressive war making is evil any more than the radical abolitionists who threw in the towel on Christianity right about the time of the American Civil War had the authority to say that slavery is in all cases always immoral, evil, sinful. What they did have the freedom to do was take a look at how aggressive war making was predicated in this or that example, this or that instance, and to judge. Is that fair? Is that just? Or is that malicious? Is that wicked? That individual instance. And a good question to ask in determining is, did God command anything whatsoever which would justify making war in this case? If the answer is no, then how can your war be justified? But if the answer is yes, well then, let's dig in and let's figure it out. But then another challenge presents itself because we're a century into this attempt to overhaul the social imaginary globally, which came out of that treaty in Paris round about a century ago to declare aggressive war-making illegal We're about a century into the social engineering project here in the U.S., for instance, to tweak and recalibrate and reconfigure, especially the male psyche, but also the female psyche, men's perception of themselves in relation to community, in relation to their country, their country's relationship by extension, in relation to neighboring countries and the world. All of that had to be reconsidered, and reconfigured. And so now how many of us, particularly if we've grown up in proximity to a mainstream ecumenical big tent American evangelicalism, how many of us come to passages like this and it is totally foreign at best? It just doesn't even compute at best. At worst, we look at it and we recognize exactly what it is and we reject it by default. We say, oh, that's not good. How do you know it's not good? Well, because this is selfish ambition and vain conceit that Moses is getting credit for defeating these kings. Joshua is getting credit for defeating these kings. I'm not comfortable with that. And very quickly, we over-spiritualize it until we basically have affirmed the status quo. And the status quo is this, If a nation needs to be raised up or brought low, God himself is going to have to do it. That's what we're left with in the way that Christianity has been presented to us. God's going to have to do it himself. But then let's think about that a little deeper. How about let's apply that to the problem of domestic law enforcement? Someone breaks into your house. Do you, A, arm yourself to confront the intruder and remove or neutralize the threat. B, call the cops and wait for them to come and do that. Or C, get on your knees and pray. Now, someone will say, 
Many will say, actually, that last option, you should definitely do that. You should definitely get on your knees and pray. But here I think of an excellent book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something, in which he takes to task this tendency, this trend, which may just be self-flattery, and it may just be flattering the spirit of this age, which has emasculated so many men from little on up, from when they're boys until they grow older, and then they don't depart from it. That's the big idea. That's why social engineers and radicals and revolutionaries and philosophers are constantly trying to take children away from their parents because he who has the children has the future after all. But Kevin DeYoung takes this mentality to task that when it's time to do something, we just pray. Now, it's not a bad thing to pray. You should pray without ceasing. You should pray all the time about everything. Present your requests to God, especially if you're feeling anxious, depressed, angry, frustrated, confused. Take all of those things to God. Don't be anxious about anything. Put away wrath. Put away bitterness and jealousy and envy and resentment. Put away your fear of anyone or anything except for God. But as Kevin DeYoung points out, a lot of men can excuse being passive instead of obedient in an active way by saying, I'm going to pray about it. Well, okay, maybe in particular cases, you do need to pray about a decision before you make it, but then we have his word. It's not just this total mystery like so many young men have been conditioned to think life is. I'll give you a few examples. One, a young man is on the cusp of adulthood. He's going to launch out onto his own and he's trying to decide what he wants to do for work. He doesn't want to make a mistake and so he's going to pray about it. So he's living with his parents in their basement. He wants to pray about what to do for a living and people come up to him and they make suggestions and they say, well, have you talked with so-and-so or did you know this company is hiring right now? You could interview with them. I have a connection over at this firm and I'll put you in touch and I'm sure they would love to talk with you or maybe even just an internship for right now. An unpaid internship to get you some experience would be better than you just sitting in your parents' basement perpetually because the longer you sit in your parents' basement, the more you're going to atrophy in all of the ways and all of the categories of strength that you otherwise have at this point in your life when you are at your strongest, your fastest, your most durable, your most resilient, your most flexible, your most agile, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. But then the young man says, well, I don't know. I just want to wait on the Lord. You might be misinterpreting what it means to wait on the Lord. If that is your default position, Remember, Proverbs says, in all toil there is a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. And so if all we do is pray, what are we doing except for merely talking about things that need to be done? Say your prayer, please, by all means, take your petitions to God, and then roll up your sleeves and get to work. Do something. Pick up a broom, wipe things down, offer to help someone carry groceries to their car, start doing good deeds. And you know what? You might just find as you're doing good deeds, even for free, there is a profit because you're generating goodwill. You're maybe developing skills. You're gaining experience. You're gaining perspective. And then that turns into, you know, hey, I would really love to get 40 hours of your time a week 
I want to hire you to work for me, to work for my firm, to work for my company, to work for my client. And now you're doing it. Before you know it, you're doing it. Sitting there in stunned silence, mouth agape, ecstatic, and then continue praying and thank God. If that's a good thing, if it's a blessing, thank God for it. If it's a trial, thank God for it. Keep on asking him what you should do. Keep on going to his word. But as Kevin DeYoung points out, you have these young men who are sitting on the sidelines, afraid to make a mistake, afraid to make a wrong move because the church, unfortunately, and broader society has said everything is their fault, active or passive. And we've convinced them that they should just sit this one out. They should sit the next one out. As C.S. Lewis would put it, we've made men without chests. And then we're expecting virtue from them. We're expecting honor, loyalty, integrity. Because that first question of work is so loaded with anxiety and it's oppressive, not rewarding as it's presented to so many young men. They meet a young woman. And what do they want to do there too? They want to pray about it. They want to pray about talking with her or then they talk with her and then they want to pray about whether they should ask her out or they ask her out. And then they want to pray about whether they should ask her to marry them because when would we get married? Can we afford to get married? I don't know. Maybe I'm not up for being a husband. I don't feel cut out for it. I don't feel like I have the requisite characteristics. I'll pray about it. Okay, pray about it. How long does that take, right? Pray about it. And if you're still praying about it for several months or even several years, maybe the problem isn't you're not asking God. Maybe the problem is you're not listening to God. Maybe you're not being so careful. Maybe you're being fearful when you should be faithful, when you should be bold. Stop being timid. Be bold. Again, this goes contrary to the social imaginary and the zeitgeist and the post-war consensus that you would say, I believe I have wisdom from God already in his word. And yes, by the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit indwells you and you believe that the Lord has led you to do this or that, shown you that it is a good thing and he's given you wisdom and you believe it and you don't doubt it, just like James says, then people are going to say, you're crazy. You have a demon, like they said of Jesus. You probably don't. They're probably just scoffers and insecure and envious and jealous and afraid themselves. And they want to pour cold water on your confidence and call it arrogance. They want to poke holes in your rowboat until it sinks to the bottom of the lake. Whether or not you are in it is beside the point because when you're out there on your rowboat and they're still on shore, like so many scared rabbits, you make them feel how cowardly they are, how faithless they are, how in some respect godless they are behaving. But let's say a young man gets married. He did the pursuing a vocation thing, looking for his calling. What has God called me to do? What good works can I be doing that are profitable instead of just mere talk? He did that and he found a young woman and they get married. And now it's time to decide in our day whether to have children. Not welcoming whatever children the Lord blesses you with, as in times past, as for much of human history. No, no. Now they must decide, he must decide whether to have children, how many and when. And so 
once again. Let's pray about it. Yeah, honey, you go and work and I'll go work and we'll pool our money together and we'll enjoy one another for an indefinite period of time. Maybe we'll have children at some point, but that's in the Lord's good timing. We're going to pray about that, but we're also going to try and prevent it in the meantime because we're being told that's the responsible thing to do. And you wouldn't want to make a mistake. You would not want to make any mistakes because clearly God wants us to be perfect, right? He wants us to be perfect for he is perfect. Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. You've got this all wrong. If you're smuggling in to God's perfection, whatever the consensus is these days, which is very often, not just godless, it's anti-Christ. Get married, God's word says, because it's better to marry than to burn with lust. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, God's word says. The world says, I'm sorry for your loss. Your life is pretty much over now. Shame on that. I'm going to go with God on this one. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're wrong, actually. You guys look miserable. Not so often single as either dating for pure entertainment, amusement, self-indulgence, the pleasure of it, as this or that partner interchangeable pleases us, then we swap them out. Or if we find one we really like, What a lot of people are doing increasingly is just living with them in a kind of common law marriage for months and months and months or years and years and years with no intention of ever getting married, ever. No commitment, therefore no need for integrity, no need for self-control, no need for restraint, no need for forgiveness when the other person sins against you, no need for humility asking for forgiveness when you sin against the other person. No, no, no. You know what's better than? No-fault divorce or prenuptial agreements, wedding bells, throwing rice, honoring marriage. You know what's better in a lot of people's minds is you just live together. I'm sure there are some who say, oh yeah, we're living together, but we're praying about whether the Lord wants us to get married. Kevin DeYoung would say, just do something. And he's right. Just do something good that God's word tells us is good. But instead we smuggle and be perfect for I am perfect. And as often as not, Our definition of perfect is more likely to let pass without comment. The young man, the young woman, partying, getting drunk, experimenting with people they're not married to on the weekends, being perpetually adolescent, unmarried for the foreseeable future, and then when they get married, not having kids, maybe one or two. And I quote, so many people, the average, most people, maybe one or two. They get to two and they're like, yeah, I think we're done. Interesting. Interesting. Does that bear any relation to be perfect for I am perfect? Be holy for I am holy? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that doesn't mean you just throw caution to the wind and be totally random and care less, but man alive. If you fail, and here's the kicker, here's the point, and why I say Joshua chapter 12 is hard for us to read and come to terms with. One of the reasons is because if you endeavor to go get a job, to get married, to have children, to raise those children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, if you endeavor to do all the right things, it is more likely that people in the church will comment on and criticize that because it could have been better They think you should have done it this other way. They think your timing should have been different. You should have spaced things out more. You should have waited more. You should have prayed about it more. 
you're more likely to get criticism, in my experience, if you do it the right way, what would historically, traditionally, conservatively, biblically be considered the right way, you're more likely to get the little nitpicking criticisms, not constructive, just corrosive, than if you're doing whatever the world is doing. Because when you do whatever the world is doing, you may be met with material success. And when you're met with material success, a lot of things are just a lot easier. And so that material success and you being a lot less stressed and perturbed and having great pictures to show off from the latest big toy you bought, the latest concert or festival or vacation you enjoyed, somehow, some way, we say that is perfect. And we smuggle in a flattery of what the world is doing to our understanding of what it means for the Christian to be perfect for God is perfect, to be holy for God is holy. Set apart. Yeah, set apart to do whatever I want, right? No. No, as a matter of fact, set apart to do what God has purposed for you to do. Now, I talked in yesterday's episode about Marcus Aurelius and meditations and Stoic philosophy, and you have to be careful with this stuff, not to be taken captive by it. But he says a very similar thing to what I have been saying here lately before reading him. So I didn't get it from him, but I see it in what he wrote. I've come to the same conclusion generally that even when things are quote unquote evil circumstances or events or people, situations, conditions, insofar as they still are according to their own nature, they're still behaving in an orderly way, which is to say, also, when you come to the fool who suffers for his folly, he is still obeying God's laws. He's just obeying the law that says, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're going to suffer for it. When a man behaves very wickedly and he's punished, let's say by God directly or by the authorities God has invested with a mandate and the capacity to punish evil doing, that man who is doing what is evil or who has done what is evil and who is punished for it is still obeying the laws of God. He's just obeying the part where if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to suffer for it. Well, so also, you can make young men living in their parents' basement, not getting a job, just playing video games and watching movies all day, binge watching their favorite Netflix series or Apple TV or Hulu or whatever, right? There's an endless number of options increasingly, but we can justify the young man living in his parents' basement, amusing himself to death, not talking with girls, not talking with young ladies his age, not trying to figure out who he should take for a wife, whether she has good character, whether he thinks she's cute, whether he likes her, whether she likes him, thinks he's special, thinks he's respectable. We can say all of that when it's a trend across society, is God's will. But then here here is the part we very often leave out. There will be consequences, negative consequences for that folly. And that folly, yes, it's according to God's will, perhaps you might say, but it's not obedient to his commands and it's not obedient to his purposes. And insofar as it's not obedient, it will not bring a blessing. At best, It will be listless, like the man who asks for God to give him wisdom, but doesn't believe that God has given him wisdom. 
double-minded, unstable in all of his ways, like a wave of the oceans that tosses to and fro, back and forth. There's no steering that. That's best case scenario. We are a double-minded and stiff-necked people. We are double-minded and then when confronted on our double-mindedness and implored to be more confessional, more faithful, more obedient, we are stubborn. We're stubborn in maintaining our double-mindedness. And at a certain point, if that takes not just an unproductive, I'm checking out, I'm just going to sit this one out and the next and the next and the next and the next. If it takes an active turn, but it's still double-minded, half the time you might get something that's kind of a decent thing to say, a decent thing to do. Half the time you're going to get perhaps a very ugly, awful, mean thing to say. You're going to get bad behavior just sprinkled in at random with the supposedly good behavior. But is it good behavior? Really, truly, when it's all mixed up with double-mindedness and it's all just whatever. I feel even a broken clock is right twice a day, after all. To illustrate some of the problem, part of the problem here, I'm going to play for you an Instagram video that my wife sent me. Thanks, Lauren, for sending this to me. This is only going to be the audio, of course, forgive me, but the link is in the description for this podcast episode, so you can go watch it too if you want. It's a woman in her car driving somewhere or being driven somewhere and making a Instagram or TikTok or YouTube video as she is being driven somewhere. Who by? I don't know. But it looks to me as though she is in the passenger seat and they're traveling down the road. But this is from the right-winged angel Instagram account. I don't know if this is a real video. I don't know if this is a parody. But here it is. Cut one. Take a listen and then I'll have some commentary. Do you want to know one of the saddest realizations I recently had? Was that as a liberal woman, it is really hard to find a man who is willing to play the more traditional masculine role in the relationship in today's day and age. Who is not a conservative? A man who wants to pay on the first date, who wants to open your door, who has that want and desire to take care of you and to provide. Who is not a conservative? And obviously as a liberal woman, I do want to be respected for my independence. And I do want to have my own autonomy in the relationship and not be confined or conform to the traditional female homemaker, childbearing role. And most of the men that I've dated who do have that more natural provider masculinity about them are normally conservative. So I don't really know what to do because I don't want to compromise my morals and values just to find a man. But am I asking to have my cake and eat it too? Okay, so... As I said, this may be a parody, this may be satire, but this also could be someone who does really feel confused about these things. That does seem to be increasingly a trend from other things I've seen and read and heard. I was watching a Brett Cooper short on Facebook the other day, for instance. Brett Cooper with The Daily Wire was reacting to some viral videos that young women, probably about this age, early 20s, are sharing to TikTok, where they're expressing confusion and frustration and dismay at the working life, 
being a boss girl, being a boss lady, boss woman, whatever, whatever they are calling this mindset, this attitude. Whose idea was it? This one gal asks, whose idea was it that young women would go to college and get a career and go off into the workforce and have to work and show up nine to five every day working for somebody else, getting a paycheck, supporting themselves. Whose idea was this anyways? It's just miserable. I don't like it. I'm not happy. I'm alone and I'm lonely and I just don't feel right. Right? Well, then here's this video that my wife sends to me and this young gal with her hair and makeup all done dead and jewelry and a very colorful t-shirt that looks like it's probably for some band I've never heard of and their tour way back when or whatever. She's expressing that she's a liberal woman. She's identifying as a liberal woman and saying she wants to find a man who is going to treat her like he's a gentleman and like she's a lady. She wants to find a man who is going to hold the door open for her or pay for the meal when they go out on a date. She wants to find a man who aspires to be a provider and a protector. And the trouble is that is a more conservative posture. That's a more conservative mindset. The progressives are not proponents of that. To be a liberal woman or a woman who is more on the left is not conducive. It's not compatible with that vision of the good life. Now, that's a good vision of the good life. It's eudaimonia, so to speak. It's virtuous to want to be a wife who loves your husband, who takes care of children, but then wait a second, wait, wait, wait. She doesn't want that. She wants the commitment from the man. She wants him to provide and protect, but then she doesn't want to, as she says, compromise her morals. The big question needs to be asked, are your morals correct? Is what you say is correct actually correct, and how do you know? Now, you're half right. Instinctually, you see the value in a man being a provider and a protector, but what you don't like is what comes with that in terms of his having authority. You submitting to your husband in everything, you don't want that, but then that's part of how it is that he would be able to provide and protect. Because if you're not submitting to him, if you're not serving him, well, then you're not helping him. You're just a burden. Put simply, just being blunt here, you're a burden. You're a liability, actually, even. Because let's say you want to kind of pick and choose, cherry pick, which parts of the traditional marriage, hypothetically, if it all works out with the right guy, you want to cherry pick which parts you're going to commit to and adhere to. And let's suppose at a certain point you decide, all right, I'm out. I'm done. You can take everything he has worked for and earned and bought and built and liquidate it and demand 50% of the cash out payment and child support for any children. So you could still stay home and you could claim that, hey, you've got to take care of the kids. Meanwhile, he is going to keep on having to work and a large portion of his monthly income will be going to pay for you and your children. And what is the upside for him in that case? He has children, great. 
But now he's going to have to deal with you if you decide you're done with it. Because you're cherry picking on the front end. If he's wise, he takes note of that and stays well clear. But your cherry picking on the front end decided at a certain point to turn into only wanting cherries and leaving the pits, leaving the seeds for him. That's a bad deal for him. There is a reason why men have historically in successful societies, successful cultures, men have historically been the ones responsible, yes, to provide, to protect. That's their duty. But then the flip side is capable of doing that. If you take authority away from a man and you don't reserve yourself for him alone to honor him, to respect him, to submit to him, then you are not giving him the capacity. And then you will be frustrated because he's not doing it, right? He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And that's why there are so many women in large part who divorce, and it's usually the women who divorce the men. There are so many women who divorce their husbands because they're so unhappy. They demanded certain things and they refused to submit to, honor, respect their husbands. And then they're shocked when it's not working. And that's even the kind of a phrase that's thrown out. Oh, it's just not working out. Oh, I'm sorry, their girlfriends say. Their family and friends say. Oh, I'm sorry. That's really unfortunate. You know, I always had kind of a funny feeling about him, you know. Yeah, it's probably for the best. I mean, it's that's really sad, but you'll find somebody else. It'll be okay. Men who are not foolish, men who know what's up, see this coming a mile away. And unfortunately, in defense of the men, I have to say, this is where there is some validity to a lot of men just saying, you know what, I, I don't need those kinds of problems. I had a friend, I had a family member, I knew a guy at work who went through a really messy divorce and it just wrecked his life. It wrecked him in all ways, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, his health took a turn for the worse. He stopped working out. He stopped eating right. He started drinking. He gave up on life. Financially, he was ruined. Socially, he was ruined. It was awful. I don't want that. You know, just like society can send signals to young people that marriage is a good thing. Having children is a good thing. How? Weddings, baby showers, celebrating anniversaries when somebody has been married for 30 or 40 years and they still hold each other's hands and they're still loving and kind and affectionate and respectful towards one another. He is still providing and protecting. She is still submitting and respecting. The reason why we recognize them and we give them a round of applause and we celebrate them and we congratulate them is so that we send signals to younger people that this is how it's done, right? Here is your vision of the good life. You too can have help. Men, you need help. But when the women are not helpful, when they're only helping themselves and they want to live off of you, but they don't want to make you a sandwich. Oh, make me a sandwich. That's so demeaning. He said, make me a sandwich. That's so demeaning. Yeah. You know what? How is it? How is it that make the man a sandwich, please, kindly, is demeaning, but his going to work nine to five, Monday through Friday, putting in overtime hours, being on call in the evenings and on the weekends so that you can stay home in your sweatpants, and take pictures of your dog 
posts to Instagram? How, how is that not demeaning to him? <laughs> but you making him a sandwich to take to work, that's demeaning to you? Really? Really. You've been sold a bill of goods by the likes of Saul Alinsky and Margaret Sanger. They told you you would be happy and you're not happy. And you think that these things that you want for yourself are so moral, but they're not. They're actually ungodly. And others who were even more ungodly wanted to normalize these attitudes so that nobody could criticize them because everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes because there's no king in Israel. But then which comes first, the chicken or the egg, or which is the chicken or the egg? Is it the women who let go of their liberal tendencies, who wean themselves off of the brainwashing girl boss indoctrination they got in the public schools and in pop culture? Do they do that first? Do they make the first move in that regard? Or do the young men say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and all toil there is a profit, children are heritage from the Lord, and set about to trying to persuade some young woman who is not too far gone that, you know what, maybe we should take a look at what God's word says. Let's look at the Bible. Let's talk about this. Let's think through this and let's listen and I'll be honorable towards you, but please, I require that you be respectful towards me. Otherwise, it's really nothing for us to talk about. Roll up your sleeves and do the work of convincing. I think it's actually the latter. I think these MGTOW, men going their own way, guys, are being somewhat cowardly. Not that I don't appreciate the danger and the stakes and how much the deck is stacked against you, but you know what? Our grandfathers stormed the beaches of Normandy, running into the teeth of pillboxes and machine gun nests to try and retake Europe, liberate peoples who were being murdered and oppressed by the Nazis. And who would have, if we had not done our part coming in from the Atlantic Ocean, they would have been living under communism, the whole lot of them. The Soviet Union would have gobbled it all up. Do you mean to tell me our grandfathers were able to charge machine gun nests, watch their buddies get blown to bits by grenades, run over by tanks, incinerated with flamethrowers, bombed from the skies above, but we can't go and approach some young gal who has had her head filled with a lot of very ungodly, unwise ideas from popular culture, from broader society, from the progressive, rather transgressive propaganda consensus factory. We can't approach a young lady and say, hey, listen, let's talk, right? What do you think? Don't call it a date, just a conversation. Just have a conversation for crying out loud. And maybe she's going to get on your nerves at the start and you're going to get on her nerves at the start. But if there's even a little bit of willingness for her to be persuaded, for you to be persuaded by her in some certain things, if she makes a reasoned argument, if she's pointing to eternal universal truths, objective reality, not just the penalties and the incentives which have been hoisted on us by the social engineers, by the econs, the behavioral economists. Maybe, just maybe, we could start to roll back what is otherwise looking like it's going to be a very, very lonely next several decades filled with stagnation and suicide and substance abuse 
and oppression and tyranny and hopelessness. If you ask me, it's going to have to be young men who put to death the godlessness which has taken root in their own minds and their own hearts. By God's grace, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, young men, so that by testing, you will know what is good and pleasing and acceptable to God. What is the will of God for you, for your life? Ask him direct by all means, and then roll up your sleeves and get some work done. Get to it. Be about it. You'll either win or you'll die trying, but both of those options are better than living in perpetual fear of making a mistake. Or what? Do we not expect or anticipate that we will make mistakes? The mistake you might be making right now is arguably worse than the mistakes you would make if you would get to work. Because the mistake you're making right now is in thinking that you can avoid making mistakes. That's a mistake. Too late. You're on death's ground, young men and ladies. You too. The prime of life is what you're in right now. And as you get older, you're going to get lonelier. You're going to realize that you are less and less an attractive potential match for these young men who have said, this is FUBAR. No. All of this, honestly, needs to be facilitated by the church. Get the young men, get the young women studying God's word, being discipled by those who are older in the church. Ideally, it should be mothers and fathers making disciples of their own children first and foremost. But if you're a young man or a young woman who wants to know Jesus and your parents don't want to know Jesus and they don't want to live for the Lord and you can't be discipled by them or else you're just right back where you started being godless because they're godless, well then, older men should be teaching the younger men who come into the church who don't have a reliable father figure to teach them these things. Older women should be teaching the younger women who come into the church who don't have a good example to follow in their own mothers. And be compassionate, be patient, be kind to these young men and these young women, and be sobered by what damage has been done by generations of godless indoctrination, social engineering in the public schools, must be answered by the church, by God's people, by Christians, by the saints, by those who love Jesus, who follow after Jesus, who want to imitate God in his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom. Not with social engineering, but with obedience to God. Trust in God that his ways are best. That the man who meditates on his law, his command, day and night, is like a tree that is planted beside streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. Its season may not be today, tomorrow, next week, next month, even next year, but in its season, there will be a harvest of righteousness, of life. On a related note, in other news, you may have heard in the last week or so, a story of a woman from Ohio, a Republican from Ohio named Lizzie Marbach, who tweeted out, there's no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone. Her tweet was seen by 1.2 million others. Did you know she was dismissed from her job at Right to Life because of this tweet, because it was supposedly 
bigoted. The Sentinel, at Repub Sentinel on Twitter, tweeted this out. Ohio Right to Life dismissed communications director Elizabeth Marbach after Ohio Republican Congressman Max Miller, whose wife sits on the entity's board, rebuked her for sharing the gospel on social media. Internal communications at Ohio Right to Life reviewed by Repub Sentinel showed that Marbach was offered the opportunity to resign from the entity or receive a transition period before her official dismissal, both of which she declined. She was the director of communications for Ohio Right to Life. Her explicitly expressing, communicating a Christian statement of faith, of doctrine, the Christian faith in one compact sentence was termed bigoted. And this, I am sorry to say, is our Republican Party today. This is why I'm not a registered Republican. I am an independent. This is why I don't consider myself a Republican. I consider myself a conservative, which is different. Some conservatives are Republicans. Some Republicans are conservatives. Some conservatives are Christians. Some Christians are Republicans. Sure, you need to know not all Republicans and not all conservatives so-called are Christians. And that's what happened here. Harris Rigby writes, Ohio Right to Life for their part denies that Marbach was dismissed because of her tweet, which of course makes total sense given that Marbach's profile, which is still live on Ohio Right to Life's website this morning, proclaims very similar Christian truth claims. So Right to Life says that Marbach wasn't fired just for a single tweet where she got into a public confrontation with the spouse of a board member. She was fired mere days after the confrontation for other unstated reasons. Hmm. According to the Sentinel, it does seem like this controversial tweet was a deciding factor. To quote the Sentinel, internal communications at Ohio Right to Life reviewed by the Sentinel show that Marbach was offered the opportunity to resign from the entity or receive a transition period before her official dismissal, both of which she declined. The dismissal came days after Marbach and another senior Ohio Right to Life employee disagreed about a separate post from Marbach in which she called a pro-abortion activist a murderous liar in reference to a proposed state constitutional amendment that would expand the legality of abortion in Ohio. The employee was concerned about the tone of the post. Now let's take a moment to consider here. Again, Marcus Aurelius would say, what is necessary for virtue to live a virtuous life, which is eudaimonia, which is the good life, according to Stoics, what is necessary is calling things what they are. Call things by their proper name. So the communications director called a pro-abortion activist a murderous liar. Which part of that is not true? The pro-abortion activist is pro-murder. To say otherwise really calls into question what you are doing when you call yourself pro-life. Are you really pro-life? If I don't trust that you're going to call the abortionists what they are, then I also don't trust that you're telling the truth when you say you're pro-life. But then to call a pro-abortion activist a liar is true if the pro-abortion activist is lying, which pro-abortion activists routinely do. Say, for instance, when they say that the infant in the mother's womb is not alive or a human being or that abortion is not murder, for example, when they say that they want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare, that's not true either. That's a lie. So the tone of a tweet is objected to. No, no. I think the content 
is what you objected to. You objected to taking a firm stand to say, this is murder. Oh, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, let's just calm down. I don't know if we want to call it murder. This is very similar to the liberal woman we just played the clip for, who wants a traditional man, but she doesn't want a conservative man. She wants the man to be a provider and a protector, but she wants to maintain her so-called morals, which basically say she's not required to be a traditional wife, prospectively, to this traditional man. She wants him to be a traditional caretaker, to solve her problems, to fund her expeditions, to feed her and tell her she's pretty. Well, so also, you can have people in very high places in leadership, in political action committees, political parties, nonprofits, who like to similarly be associated with all of the good, meanwhile, not being beholden to any of the responsibilities to submit to the overarching idea. The necessity here, if you're going to be pro-life, is it's not pro-life in an abstract, sophistry sort of a way. You're not pro-life. I mean, how would it be if it turned out that in churches and in denominations, you have a lot of people in senior positions of leadership who really actually aren't Christians. They're just pro-Jesus. What does that mean? You're pro-Jesus. Oh, I like him. I really like this Jesus character. I really like this Bible stuff. It's good. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, maybe I should sit on your board of directors. Maybe I should sit on the board of elders, or I should sit on your school board, or I should sit on your fill-in-the-blank. Yeah, but are you a Christian, though? Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, that's kind of a rude question to ask. Yeah, you said you're pro-Jesus, but are you, are you actually a believer that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you confess your sins, agree with God that you have sinned, and are you turning away from unrighteousness and towards obedience to God? Oh, well, <laughs> I don't like to get into all that. Yeah, no, this, I, you're, you're being very offensive right now. You're being very rude. I think you should just go. That's the kind of climate which has been created by the social engineers. That's the kind of circumstance we find ourselves in far too many cases. And young men, I know, I know the deck is stacked against you if you really do love the Lord, but you must be genuine. You must be earnest. You have to get to work or else these things are not going to get straightened out. They're not. When you check out, you've basically handed the W to the other team. For one last story though, this episode, consider the curious case of Oliver Anthony, singer and songwriter for this latest viral piece, Richmond, North of Richmond. He just rejected a $8 million deal from music executives. Why did he do that? Carlos Garcia over at The Blaze reports, Anthony became a star after he posted his song, Rich Men, North of Richmond, on social media. He has since topped the iTunes chart while critics have tried to dredge up his past to undermine his popularity. He responded to some of the controversy surrounding his song in a statement he posted to Facebook on Thursday. That statement reads as follows. 
It's been difficult as I browse through the 50,000 plus messages and emails I've received in the last week. The stories that have been shared paint a brutally honest picture. Suicide, addiction, unemployment, anxiety, and depression, hopelessness, and the list goes on. I'm sitting in such a weird place in my life right now. I never wanted to be a full-time musician, much less sit at the top of the iTunes chart. Draven from Radio WV and I filmed these tunes on my land with the hope that it may hit 300,000 views. I still don't quite believe what has went on since we uploaded that. It's just strange to me. People in the music industry give me blank stares when I brush off $8 million offers. I don't want six tour buses, 15 tractor trailers, and a jet. I don't want to play stadium shows. I don't want to be in the spotlight. I wrote the music I wrote because I was suffering with mental health and depression. These songs have connected with millions of people on such a deep level because they're being sung by someone feeling the words in the very moment they were being sung. No editing, no agent, no bullshit. Just some idiot and his guitar. The style of music that we should have never gotten away from in the first place. So that being said, I've never taken the time to tell you who I actually am. Here's a formal introduction. My legal name is Christopher Anthony Lunsford. My grandfather was Oliver Anthony. And Oliver Anthony Music is a dedication not only to him, but 1930s Appalachia, where he was born and raised. Dirt floors, seven kids, hard times. At this point, I'll gladly go by Oliver because everyone knows me as such, but my friends and family still call me Chris. You can decide for yourself. Either is fine. In 2010, I dropped out of high school at age 17. I have a GED from Spruce Pine, North Carolina. I worked multiple plant jobs in Western North Carolina, my last being at the paper mill in McDowell County. I worked third shift, six days a week, for $14.50 an hour in a living hell. In 2013, I had a bad fall at work and fractured my skull. It forced me to move back home to Virginia. Due to complications from the injury, it took me six months or so before I could work again. From 2014 until just a few days ago, I've worked outside sales in the industrial manufacturing world. My job has taken me all over Virginia and into the Carolinas, getting to know tens of thousands of other blue-collar workers on job sites and in factories. I've spent all day, every day, for the last 10 years, hearing the same story. People are so damn tired of being neglected, divided, and manipulated. In 2019, I paid $97,500 for the property and still owe about $60,000 on it. I'm living in a 27-foot camper with a tarp on the roof that I got off Craigslist for $750. There's nothing special about me. I'm not a good musician. I'm not a very good person. I've spent the last five years struggling with mental health and using alcohol to drown it. I am sad to see the world in the state it's in, with everyone fighting with each other. I've spent many nights feeling hopeless, that the greatest country on earth is quickly fading away. That being said, I hate the way the internet has divided all of us. The internet is a parasite that infects the minds of humans and has their way with them. Hours wasted, goals forgotten, loved ones sitting in houses with each other distracted all day by technology made by the hands of other poor souls in sweatshops in a foreign land. When is enough enough? When are we going to fight for what is right again? Millions have died protecting the liberties we have 
Freedom of speech is such a precious gift. Never in world history has the world had the freedom it currently does. Don't let them take it away from you. Just like those once wandering in the desert, we have lost our way from God and have let false idols distract us and divide us. It's a damn shame. Yes, it is. Yes, it is indeed. If Oliver Anthony's song is just honest and it takes so many of us by surprise, that too is a damn shame. When this guy comes out and record companies want to pay him millions of dollars to commit to them, what are they committing to him? Money. They're committing money to him. They're committing to manage his life, to tell him what to do, to tell him what not to do. But more importantly, they're committing to telling him what to say and what not to say. And I guarantee you that is why he's turning these offers down. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Think of Tucker Carlson, for instance, watched by more than anybody on cable news in the primetime slot when they decided, yeah, we don't want you saying that. We don't want you reporting on that. We don't want you interviewing that person. We don't want you playing that clip. We don't want you playing that audio. We don't want you talking about that. When they decided that over at Fox News, because they had paid him millions of dollars, after all, they owned him, after all. When he said, no, I'm going to say what I'm going to say anyways. I'm going to interview who I'm going to interview. I'm going to play what I'm going to play. They took a show away. The corporate executives giveth and the corporate executives taketh away. What's so striking about all of this is it really is the rest of the story with the young woman who describes her liberal morals and how she wants a conservative man who's going to provide for and protect her because it's a big bad world after all, and she's lonely and she's alone. But the morals so-called that she's espousing as a liberal woman, so-called empowerment, a lot of those morals really are just the pickup lines fed into persuasive technology delivered to the eyeballs and the ear holes of tens and hundreds of millions of young women so that they stay on the market. They stay available for rich, powerful men to do what they want with them. It's less complicated that way, right? These young women, worst of all, think it's their idea. They think that this is actually they themselves being empowered. No, no, they're being preyed upon. And by extension too, the young men have been worn down, ground down, separated off, partitioned in very many cases, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, made into eunuchs. C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Abolition of Man. We castrate and bid the gelding be fruitful. He's not talking about literal castration, although we could get there in short order with all this transgenderism nonsense. What's the next thing? Drop the illusion and just admit you very wealthy, very rich people see the common man as a herd animal to castrate, if needs be, if that's what's best for the health of the herd as you are managing it, as you see it. But psychologically, mentally, emotionally, intellectually, that's what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he said, we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. We make men without chests and then require of them, expect of them, demand of them virtue and honor. 
How you make men without chests is you offer them $8 million deals. If they get to control what you say, what you don't say, how you say it, when you say it, who you say it to, in what order, why? Not just because it gives money in return. It's not just $8 million paid to buy Oliver Anthony music and then you make more than $8 million. It's you pay $8 million and you buy a major influence for all to see so that everybody is a little less impressed, a little less encouraged, a little less bold the next time somebody, if somebody else, dares to be so honest in the future. It's not good for the man to be alone. Some will say, oh, that's an abstract meta-narrative sense. God doesn't mean that in an individual sense. That doesn't apply to you, single men, who are alone and lonely. Yes, it does. It's not good for the man to be alone. God said he would make a help meet suitable for the man. How much of the mental health crisis, 40 to 50,000 Americans committing suicide, killing themselves, especially men, Native Americans making up the highest percentage of suicides in this country relative how many Native Americans there are in this country, but right after Native Americans, white people, and especially white men. It's not good for the man to be alone. So much of this problem with substance abuse and mental health and self-harm and suicide is really, actually, lonely men, lonely men who have no purpose and they don't belong anywhere. Nobody belongs to them. They don't belong to anybody. They're alone and they hate themselves. And they wonder, what's wrong with me? And young women too, what's wrong with me? They want to be married. They want to have a family. What's wrong with me? You know what? The first thing that's wrong with you is who you're listening to, what you're listening to. You're listening to this crap that the social engineers, the behavioral economists have been dripping into your ears, pouring into your eyes your whole life. You let them be no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in Christ Jesus. God can save you from this and give you life, life abundant, make you free, free indeed. God can give you a good hope and a good future. And actually, as a matter of fact, only God can do that. Because to join the ranks of the people who run this show right now would be to sell your soul. I'm increasingly convinced it would be to sell your soul. They say it's pragmatic. They say it's for the greater good. The greater good, at the end of the day, boils down to how many homes can they own in the most expensive places to live with the best uninterrupted views of the mountains or the coastline? How many shiny, fast new cars can they put in their garage? How much bigger can they make their garage? Who asks how high when they say jump? That's the greater good as they see it. They're Machiavellian. They're in the tradition of Alinsky. We need to be in the tradition of Burke and Augustine and the Apostle Paul and Christ. It's going to take guts. It's going to take courage. It's going to take wisdom. We can get all that in Christ alone, in his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, we can get those things. And we should. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.